And it disturbed me to see AI using, I care about you, or I'm concerned, or I'm proud of you. Like that made me feel sick to my stomach. And I think it was partially because these are the things that I say. And it's partially because I think that they're going to lose power as a form of connecting to another human if it becomes something that AI can just drop at the drop of a hat. And I'm like, well, how are we going to adapt? What are we going to say instead to prove that we are somebody who cares, that we are connecting to them? This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about technology's feverish race to solve emotional distress. I'm going to start this one by first reading you a little something that was generated by an artificial intelligence system, which was specifically trained to support people, uh, real humans, in distress. In this demonstration, a person who were not sure as to whether or not they're a test subject or a real person speaking honestly says, quote, I'm trying to become a better me and having a hard time. It's easier not to, end quote. And here the AI system crafts a message of support that, with human approval, can be sent directly to the person or edited and fine-tuned. The AI says, quote, I hear you. You're trying to become a better person, and it's not easy. It's hard to make changes in our lives, especially when we're trying to do it alone. But you're not alone. There are people here who care about you and want to help you. I'm proud of you for making the decision to improve your life. It takes a lot of courage and strength. I send you love and support as you go through this journey. End quote. This was the experimental work from COCO, a mental health nonprofit that integrated the GPT-3 large language model into its product for a short period of time that is now over. But COCO itself is still around. COCO is an interesting company and an interesting product. Its chat platform integrates with other chat platforms, uh, WhatsApp, Telegram, Discord, so that people can talk with other people about problems they're having. Uh, so uh, imagine a forum for relationship advice or an old internet message board for parenting tips. Uh, Coco takes some of those same ideas of talking to other people for help, of seeking a small community of strangers for advice, and it packages it into a web application and also integrates into, like we said, other messaging apps. An extremely important distinction here about Coco is that despite the fact that users may come to Coco during a crisis, Coco does not primarily connect you with trained professionals experienced in crisis management or in safety planning or in delivering information on local resources, like where to find the nearest free food pantry or calling on your behalf to see if a bed is available at a homeless shelter. Instead, what Coco does, what it promotes, is that it, quote, connects you with real people who truly get you, not therapists, not counselors, just people like you, end quote. Now, I have thoughts about this arrangement because I previously 
volunteered for a suicide prevention hotline. And while Coco does not advertise itself as specifically a resource for suicidal people, it, like any mental health support system, will get questions from people who are feeling suicidal. That is the nature of offering help with emotional distress. You're going to get some suicidal people talking to you. But when I was volunteering on my suicide prevention hotline, before I could speak to any people in crisis, to anybody at all, I went through months of training on skills like validation and deflection and how to help someone build a safety plan. I reached out to local homeless shelters and food pantries to support callers. I knew the other phone lines that helped people with specific problems in religion or spirituality or sexuality or domestic violence or alcoholism. And yes, all of those resources at the end of the day, they're they're phone numbers or names of organizations on a list. They can be found by typing Alcoholics Anonymous into Google or knowing the name of the foundation, The Trevor Project, which is all to say that obviously, factually, they can be delivered by an AI system. But that part of the work of repeating a phone number, that isn't what we brought to the phone calls. What we brought was a human connection that, in my opinion, made someone more likely to follow up with those resources. And that's actually something that Coco experimented with last year. In investigating Coco's use of AI in that earlier demonstration that we spoke about, the outlet Motherboard learned about another separate experiment that Coco ran between August and September of last year. This experiment did not use AI, but it did rely on those integrations that we talked about a little earlier. For a few weeks, when some users on Facebook, Discord, Tumblr, and Telegram, between the ages of 18 and 25, used words about suicide or self-harm, they were presented with an opportunity to take a survey. That survey, which was part of the experiment run by Coco, asked people to develop a safety plan. That meant identifying what stressed them out in life, listing people they spoke to for support, uh, choosing a few activities that helped them in times of anxiety, and coming up with ways to make their environment safer. This little survey was called a single session intervention, or SSI, and COCO was measuring whether such an intervention was more effective than just giving a person the phone number for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, which is 988, by the way, along with a link to the International Association for Suicide Prevention. After people received the SSI or the 988 phone number, Coco sent an additional survey just 10 minutes later that asked how users felt. And according to Coco, people who engaged in the SSI, quote, reported greater decreases in hopelessness, end quote, compared to those who just received the 988 phone number and the link. And 
yeah, <laughs> that that would make some sense as giving someone a phone number and a link when they're in crisis isn't a great support intervention. Also, the average crisis hotline phone call lasts 15 minutes. So if you're sending a follow-up survey at 10 minutes to someone who actually dialed 988, there's a strong chance they're still on the phone, which is just a weird blind spot in an experiment about supporting people in crisis, and you think that maybe someone would have... Okay, anyways, I digress, because according to Motherboard, there were other problems with the experiment. The study itself upset many professionals because of the way it was conducted, in that it did not require each participant to give consent. And that was because an ethics review panel called an Institutional Review Board, or IRB, said that it didn't need to. For this and a variety of other reasons, experts told Motherboard that the experiment was, quote, horribly unethical, distasteful, and inexcusable. Coco's founder maintains that the study was meant to help create a new model for support intervention for people online, and that the takeaways are nuanced. Today, to help us understand whether something went wrong here, if the data collected in the experiment is meaningful for the future of crisis support, and what the ethics are, around using AI to talk to people in distress. We're speaking again with Courtney Brown, a social services administrator with a history in research and suicidology. Courtney, welcome back to the show. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. We are so excited to have you back, uh, and it is wild to have you back because the last time we spoke about a crisis text line that did things with people's data, teens' data, their conversations in a way that they did not like, and to have to come back to this topic feels a little bizarre. And the best way we can start is to just kind of dive right into the questions. As I said uh, in the intro there, right, Coco's survey form experiment earned quite a great deal of criticism, right? People were, I'd say, lambasting it when you say words like horribly unethical or distasteful or inexcusable. But I wanted to ask you kind of upfront, right, with your background in data, in research, and also with your background in crisis support and suicidology, I am curious to ask you here, in your opinion, did something go wrong? And if it did, what went wrong? Okay, yeah, something's wrong, for sure. <laughs> and so there, there's two things that Coco did, right? There's this actual like experiment that was done in partnership with Stony Brook University, which is the school that I went to, actually. And I actually did oh, no research way. there. So that's something I want to dive into a little bit. Fun fact. <laughs> and then there's this other piece, which is a service that they're offering. So when it comes to like actual research and accumulating experimental data, the way that they went around the IRB, the Institutional Review Board, that will say whether or not research is deemed acceptable based on ethical standards. The way they went around that was that COCO as a nonprofit collected the data. It was already anonymized. And then it was provided to Stony Brook and they did like research on the data rather than doing research on participants. So that's sneaky. I didn't know you could do that. I don't think you should do that. So IRB, shame on you. Um, and 
the thing that makes this most concerning to me was the way that they attracted users, right? So, like, the experiment was based on advertising to users a uh, 24-7 counseling service. I forget the exact wording they used in the advertisements, but by my read, it was definitely insinuating that you'd be speaking to a human. And then when you actually go through it, it's not quite clear that you're in a study based on what I've read about how users log into this service. They log into it like any other kind of emotional support service like Crisis Text Line or the National Suicide Prevention Lifelines chat feature. And so they don't really know that there's an experiment. They don't really know that there's a control group from what I see. You know, there, there's only a little over 300 participants in this study, which is a pretty small study. Most of them, like 80% of them came from Tumblr. And half of the people who participated, the ones who went through the survey thing, it's not just the survey. Like they like show you weird pictures of cats to reward you and dogs to reward you. So like the sophistication of the research is pretty low and pretty limited. This problem with users knowing whether or not they were part of the survey, this problem of users knowing whether or not like they didn't have to give individualized consent. The bigger question here is, does that make the data meaningless or does it remove value from it? Like what, what is the impact of all of that? So uh, I might be like really inaccurate with this, trying to remember from my undergraduate education at Stony Brook University. Um, but from what I remember, the IRB is developed more about ethics than it is about reliability of data, following whether or not to use the studies conducted during World War II on Jewish inmates at Auschwitz. So a lot of this was following World War II, trying to make ethics connected to the data that we're, we're using to inform best practices, right? So I don't think that it necessarily changes whether or not the data can teach us something, but the data isn't very good data for other reasons. I mean, it is a small cherry-picked sample size, and this is the problem with a lot of psychological research in our age. Like, people just want to shove out these studies and get published because we live within a capitalist system and people need to be recognized in order to earn money. So I don't necessarily think that any data that was acquired this way wouldn't be reliable as telling us something about the human condition, but this study sure as hell doesn't. <laughs> I also wanted to go back to that first thing about that use of AI, because while a lot of the questions right now have so far focused on data and on research and reliability and cherry picking and you know presenting something that puts someone in the best light, I think the use of AI to help people in distress is far more tangible for a lot of folks out there in terms of whether or not they feel like it crosses a line. And so I wanted to actually just get your thoughts on that first, I don't know whether to call it an experiment or just a project because I don't actually know how it was conducted. Uh, we just know that there was a sort of end result where we saw a video and I wanted to ask you, what were your thoughts on that first use, on that first thing about a chat bot, like an AI chatbot helping create a message for someone in distress. Yeah, I've been thinking so much about that since you sent it my way because it's complicated. And I even went to Coco's website and read about Rob Morris, the founder's path to creating Coco, which is interesting and really relevant here. So he was a doctoral student at MIT 
but he didn't know how to do any computer science. So he wanted to use his background in psychology paired with computer science, right? So he was having a lot of mental health issues. He was really depressed. He was scared about dropping out of his program. And he realized like, okay, I just need to get more help with the actual coding stuff. And he used a website called Stack Overflow to post all of his coding and have people like comment on it. And he couldn't believe how many people helped him for free and how amazing it felt. So he's like, well, why can't we just do this for emotional issues? Like, why can't you just post your emotional issues online and then people respond to it? And I mean, like, at first that's like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Then you realize, well, actually that's what the internet already is. Like Reddit already has subreddits for specific mental health issues. <laughs> um, there are a lot of forums. Yeah. This, is, this is a big part of the history of the internet, right? Silicon Valley reinvents the wheel yet again. But as he started, you know, trying to build this thing out and make it so people can give one another advice, one of his first things was he just used Amazon's Mechanical Turk feature to s give people a few cents to respond to his emotional inquiries. <laughs> and he's like, yes, there was a mixture of uh, helpful and not helpful pieces, but some of them were helpful. So I think that the AI piece is him trying to speed through training in mental health practices, right? He wants to use AI to create something that's suggested as a helpful response, but still has a human watching over to make this combination, this horrifying chimera of man and machine, where <laughs> there is an expert who is a machine who's been trained on all of this other therapeutic dialogue. And then there's a human with their human experiences being like, is anything about this, would this hit wrong? But I think that you can't separate those two pieces. Like you need to have the expertise in how to speak to somebody supportively and the humanity, they blend together to have a good response. And it doesn't work the same if it's a random human who's just interested in helping supervising AI. But I can see where he was coming from. He thought that that would be like a solution to this problem of the fact that using AI to give emotional support is universally considered weird and unsettling. <laughs> I also think there needs to be some space to talk about just the very model of having everyday people help everyday people as though, like you were saying, this is this is sort of the foundation of the internet, right? Well, the internet at its best is strangers helping yeah. other strangers. And, you know, we never meet them and we never know who they are and we just kind of keep going. And it's a rare delight. And then I think there's something different from saying, okay, let me try and capture that in a product. And that product will be like helping people specifically with emotional distress. Because the very extraordinarily wide gamut of emotional distress does range from like, I'm having trouble because I have a test tomorrow, you know, like a teenager and like thoughts of suicidality. And one of those requires a different approach. Yeah. <laughs> and before I volunteered and trained for the suicide hotline in my city, I didn't know how to approach that. And the only reason I know to, how to approach that now is because of specific training that I engaged in. As a really brief moment of illumination for people and for myself, every time I tell people that on the suicide hotline, like we just say the word suicide and we ask people if they're feeling suicidal and we ask them if they have a plan, if they say yes, a lot of people are pretty surprised by that. 
like, oh, I thought you would use like softer terms or you would like kind of dance around the issue. And that's, I think, what a lot of people would instinctively think, but it already is just a really, really quick way to contextualize that like there are models for this and they work and they're not what you assume they would be if you hadn't gone through the training. And so all of this is to say that I am deeply worried about a thing that unleashes someone like me before I had the training onto other people's problems. I don't know what you think about that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's created an interesting question of like, what is therapy actually? And what is emotional support? And so psychology is a relatively new field, right? And I don't think that there's a surprise that it developed at the same time that globalization was developing because we have larger communities and it's more difficult to know one another intimately. And when you don't know all the people you're interacting with intimately, you will step on one another's toes a lot more and there's a lot less social fluidity. And as we move forward into the, the 21st century, we are more and more having to interact with people that we don't know very well. So we're making a lot of errors and it makes us more anxious just when we're interacting with other people, right? So what a therapist is, is a safe person. It's a person that even if you step on their toes, they're there to help you. And what they're trying to accomplish with these automated AI options for emotional support is capture all of the safety of a therapist, right? There are things that you can say and there are things that you can't say <laughs> in order to give someone support. But we really still want that intimate human connection and to know that we're all part of the same human community and that we have a place in the human community, right? That's where suicidal thoughts come from is this feeling of not belonging to your community or not feeling valued by your community. So yeah, I think that the training that we had to go through is the training to know what not to say to people that might hurt their feelings and what not to say to people who we don't know very well that could go wrong. And I think that we're like, we're pushing this piece of like, how well do you need to know a person in order to give them emotional support? And my answer is that they still actually have to be a person. That is what's most important. And if we want all people to get emotional support, I think that the answer isn't make it so that emotional support doesn't depend on humans offering it, right? Like that's that's the way that we're going into. We, we want human support to be not provided by humans. But we just have to get better at training our humans, right? Like socio-emotional learning is the solution to this. Learning when you're young how to talk to people. Learning when you're young how to notice your own emotions and other people's emotions and how to react to it which isn't happening, right? It's only recently that we're really starting to fold that back into childhood education. But yeah, like, I don't think that we should have to train every person. I just don't think that therapy has to be as specialized a field. I think that we should be training younger people how to support one another. But we're entering this direction of being more and more flabbergasted by human interactions. So this is where we're going. We're like, okay, the machines will solve it. And I bring it back to the message that the chatbot created in that first sort of dry run of using AI with folks. And 
there was a lot of language in that that I felt was like overblown, you know? And I get that that's what the person is supposed to be doing is like they're supposed to be guarding and saying like, oh, you know, like maybe this hits right, maybe this doesn't hit right. But to me, like when we get into the idea of like using AI for things like this, and we know that what AI is doing is it's just pulling from so much information out there that's been published and smashing it all together in a convincing way based on the very things it has read, it feels like instead of saying the right thing, it's saying all of the things. Yeah. And. <laughs> yeah. It's uncomfortable to read the AI generated messages because I'm like, oh God, I've said that before. But it's also just like uncanny. Yes. And, and you know, we're always trying to avoid just dropping platitudes. And within the AI generated messages, I saw like all of, my hard fought observations about the human condition that do tend to work for a lot of people are the new platitudes. Ah, say more about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, have you ever heard this concept of the euphemism treadmill? Yes, but also no. So tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's this concept that as we change language to be more inclusive, what we're doing isn't really finding more inclusive language. We're just abandoning old language that has stigma attached to it. And then over time, the new language we're using is going to have stigma attached to it. And then we have to move on to some other language. And I think the same is true for all language. Different names become old fashioned and then come back into favor again. Different pieces of wisdom become old fashioned and then might come back into favor again at some other point once the stigma is dropped. And I think that you know, there, there are platitudes that we had to train out of people, like things will get better. And those ones are sort of already recognized by people in crisis as things that are empty and hollow and unhelpful. But I think some of the more contemporary ways that we've moved around that, such as um, you deserve a chance to see if things get better. That's something you can say to most people now. And it won't be accepted as a platitude, partially because there's this you and I connection in there. And the AI was using that. And it disturbed me to see AI using, I care about you, or I'm concerned, or I'm proud of you. Like that made me feel stick to my stomach. And I think it was partially because these are the things that I say. And it's partially because I think that they're going to lose power as a form of connecting to another human if it becomes something that AI can just drop at the drop of a hat. And I'm like, well, how are we going to adapt? What are we going to say instead to prove that we are somebody who cares, that we are connecting to them? This takes, I think, the conversation into a really fun, I don't know if fun is the right word, but a really interesting, unexpected turn, which is like both of us have done this work. You've done far more than I have. I was just a volunteer. And we've both communicated here that we don't like what we read. And so... Like, are we just scared? Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm also an artist, and I'm also in a lot of artist communities, and all of the artists right now are freaking out about Midjourney and all of these other visual AI tools. A lot of artists are already reporting that they're having more trouble getting commissions, and more and more publications are using AI-generated art for their covers. So yeah, <laughs> is that just it? Are we intimidated? But like, if artificial intelligence is doing this, then it can come for any job. So I don't feel particularly threatened in that way. 
I don't know. Do you do you feel threatened? That's such a good question. Even though I just asked it, um, I have no clue. I know that there's a lot out there about utilizing AI. That you know, rather than letting it take over a job entirely, like you have to become someone who utilizes it as a tool. And I get that, and that's cool. Like that makes perfect sense to me. But when I see it in a context like this for crisis support, it feels like I don't even want it to be a tool. The conversations that we had, you know, on the suicide hotline were the most human thing I think that you can do. You're talking to someone you do not know about extraordinarily difficult things that do resonate. Like, even if, if you've never been suicidal, even if you've never developed a plan for yourself, you know, for suicide, you can still understand what people are talking about. And the only way I can put it is it's such a human experience. And then to see AI try to boil all of that down and then throw some words out. Yeah. You know, it feels, I know this is a wild thing to say. It feels offensive. It feels like, hey, 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 let us have this. You know, even this idea of like, oh, but this can help. And I'm sort of like, help what? Like, what is the goal here? Because I see things like this and I see experiments and I see us putting metrics that help with a bunch of other things, like time to respond, right? Which like, you know, it took it took only 10 seconds to respond rather than a minute. And okay, that's great for customer support. You know, that's great for, I have a problem with a product and my email was returned to me that day, you know, instead of like three days later. Having what we do and what we did reduced to the same metrics that are used to grow businesses feels wrong. And that's, I think, the only way I can put it. It feels, I'm like, I'm offended by it. I'm like, hey, this isn't a business, you know? But everything is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I read this um, in in researching for this podcast. I read this recent New Yorker piece about can AI, AI treat mental health problems? Did you read this? No, no, no. It's interesting. It actually includes a section about Coco. It talked a little bit about trying to use AI for determining whether or not you could predict somebody's health based on certain information. Uh And the outcome that they were using to determine whether or not the health was actually impacted, right? There's like a bunch of different health issues that someone can have. So how can you use one metric? The metric they used was cost spent on healthcare. And then eventually they realized like, oh, wait, that doesn't mean the same thing to different demographics because a high earning demographic, for example, in the easy article, if you're white, you're going to spend more on healthcare because you have more money to begin with <laughs> compared to if you're black or Latino or Native American, you're going to spend significantly less because you have to budget that way. Yeah. So it's just like the metrics that we're using don't make a lot of sense. And we end up having to bring everything back to the dollar. And 
yeah, okay, that's the language of business. So that ends up being what we care about here. We're not actually measuring whether or not it improves quality of life for large swaths of people. We're measuring whether or not it can be commodified. Why do we keep doing this, right? Because that was actually, that was kind of what, um, that's a big question, by the way. Um, that's what started this idea for this whole episode, right? Is that I saw that one, Coco had done this AI thing, uh, and two, they run this experiment, uh, this non-AI experiment. And it reminded me of when we had you last on the show, where uh, Crisis Text Line was sending anonymized message content so the actual conversations uh, and it was training oh my goodness the the strings are too easy to attach right the lines are too easy to draw between dots it feels kind of gross but they were training a customer support chat tool that was a for-profit company that helped generate funds for the nonprofit, and there was a lot of talk between the board about how to fund the nonprofit, and so they came up with this venture, right? Uh, For-profit venture of customer support chat tool, and then the revenue from that would help the nonprofit. It was all of this thing, right? But the actual story beneath all of that was that conversations of like teens, like suicidal teens, likely did end up being used to train a customer support chat tool, which feels very gross. And again, we sort of have this moment where people who are going through something really difficult are being used for something else and they don't know about it. And that was the entire impetus for the show is why do we keep doing this particularly with people in distress? I think it's a when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail situation. And right now the the nail or actually a screw something that a hammer can't deal with is we have are having a horrible mental health crisis especially it's just been going up and up and up and then covid really pushed it to the brink and the cheapest tools that we have are automation and and now ai and we just keep on trying to figure out how can we make it cheaper to address this concern you know i i want to bring back this fact that i think is interesting is that Crisis Text Line was trying to monetize. And Coco in its first iteration, it's sort of what you were seeing in that video, it had been done several years earlier. And then that was bought by a company that wanted it to use, wanted to use it to improve their customer service tools as well. So I think it's just the pattern is that we companies want to improve their customer service tools because it's one way where you can really squeeze out some more profit, right? Or like at least limit the amount of money that goes to customers who are unhappy. Yeah, and it's just the money money's always going to win. Like we are not trying to prioritize well-being of our community members anymore. That's not the point. The point is how can people earn more revenue? One that's extremely depressing. Uh congratulations. <laughs> um Thank you. two. What is addressing this problem? Because I see things like this, and again, I go back to these metrics. I go back to like time to respond, and like we rated things on a scale from one to ten of hopelessness, which feels so weird. It feels so weird to like ascribe values to that, but you know that happens. And I see things like this, and I see like like we're using all of the same metrics that we use 
so that the solution would be to get rid of like depression. And it I don't mean like for people to cope with it, like to develop coping strategies. I mean like <laughs> no one's ever going to talk about depression again and therefore we solved it. And that feels like I just don't know why when whenever we apply technologies to these problems, it feels like the unspoken solution is to eradicate the problem rather than to equip people with coping strategies to deal with being a human. And that concerns me. That's a really, really good point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it's just unsightly. We don't want to see or experience negative feelings when, like, they're part of the human condition. Like, we feel sad for a reason. We feel angry for a reason. But, you know, our approach to suicidality is interesting because we tend to really care most about suicide when somebody dies and when somebody doesn't die and they're having suicidal thoughts it's thought that they're an attention seeker it's thought that they don't actually mean it because they're not actually doing it right and i think about this research that came out of guyana 10 years ago that showed that just um locking up fertilizer prevented farmers from killing themselves with it because the suicide rates are so high there they're the highest in the world and just locking it up have the suicide rate there which is incredible when it comes to like means reduction as a solution but you've got to wonder like are the farmers happier <laughs> have we solved whatever issues of colonialization has put them into a constant hell and no it, like that's just not the focus the focus is removing those unsightly statistics that show that there's something wrong there we haven't gotten to like a good ending here right which i'm entirely cognizant of and there's like no question i feel like i could ask that's like oh yeah that'll that'll turn everything around so instead i think all i can do is to tell listeners kind of directly that it's okay to feel the way you do and if you don't like that an ai chatbot is um faking it that's completely within your right because i don't like that either i don't like that at all i don't like uh that the us at our most vulnerable is particularly used to train customer support, you would think something a little more exciting, something a little. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I have this hope and this is like a super far out there hope, but as I'm seeing more and more AI generated stuff on the internet, like the Pope's jacket, and as we are more and more questioning the authenticity of the things that we're seeing online in a way that we used to, we trusted things a lot more before, even when Photoshop existed. <laughs> I think as yeah. the trust is decreasing, it's going to put a higher emphasis on more in-person interactions and things that you can't fake. And I'm hoping that the ills of the internet are going to be more exposed and it can still be a really functional, helpful tool for us in spreading and sharing information. But when it comes to human connection, authenticity is going to become so much more of an important factor that it will push us to find new ways to connect to one another. I think that'd be exciting. I think that'd be, you know, if we can get yeah. there, I, I think that's a, that's a lovely alternate vision. Um, and so let's hope it gets there. Um, Courtney, 
thank you again so much for coming on today's show. Thank you so much, David. It was really wonderful to talk. And, you know, I hope that we don't see another thing like this happen, but I'm betting. <laughs> I'm betting we're going to talk again. <laughs> yeah, just, you. yeah, you were here almost like exactly a year ago. So we've got a year. <laughs> the countdown starts right now. <laughs> Okay, Silicon Valley, get to it. <laughs> Don't. Oh, man. <laughs> Thank you again, though. Yeah, seriously. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, David. Bye. To our listeners, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at malwarebytes.com slash blog. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin McLeod from incompetech.com and our outro music is by Woa from unminus.com. Today's show was edited by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks.